Welcome to A History of Financial Markets, Season 2, Episode 5, A Vicious Deflationary Depression. That's the clickbait headline I've decided to use for this episode. At the end of last episode, we saw the economy turn from inflationary to deflationary in the spring of 1920. And in this episode, we will investigate why that can be harsh and terrible for all parts of the economy and specific examples from the depression of 1920 to 1921. And I'll uh, open here with Adolf C. Miller on the Federal Reserve Board. I said this last episode, but I'll say it again because I think this highlights the mindset of policymakers during this time period. He said, quote, where there has been inflation, there must follow deflation as a necessary condition to the restoration of economic health. I don't, that's a lot different than it is today. I'm not saying it's better or worse, uh, but that's definitely not how people act today, or at least the Federal Reserve uh, members. So let's start with 1920, a very terrible year, one of the worst in the 20th century for the US economy. Here's a quote from a book on the 1920, 1921 depression. I forget what it's called, but if you want, I think we'll link it in the show notes. Um, quote, the vertical angle of the descent of the cotton market seemed to paralyze would-be buyers. They could see for themselves that tomorrow's price would certainly be lower than today's, however ridiculously low today's might appear. I mean, that's just, that's you can't- de- That is the deflationary cycle encapsulated in a sentence. Yeah. You can't operate your business and they just get screwed and then everything collapses if you're in a capitalist society. On January 3rd, 1920, the Dow made a high of $109.88. I don't, I think there was the high in November of 1992, but I'm sure this is just a kind of a maybe a dead cap bounce if you want to describe it like that. But then on December 21st, 1920, Dow closed at $66.75, down 39% from the highs. Essentially, what happened is that deflation cut into business margins, but wages didn't go down, leaving everything squeezed. So why didn't wages go down? So, I mean, typically wages get renegotiated each year. So they're on a contract and it's a lot harder to convince people to lower their wages. It's just, there's that, you know, that pressure. No one's going to do that. So it's easier to fire a few people than decrease wages for everyone. And if you have to give out the same output, you can't, fire people. So it, it really, you know, puts the pressure on. And again, the con- the wage contracts typically aren't for like a month. Sometimes then I guess they are, they probably are, but so then you kind of have to borrow, I'm guessing. Yeah. You're operating at a loss. So you got to borrow. Like- you got to borrow. I mean, things could just, you get squeezed. Everyone gets squeezed. Um, commodities were the key here and the farmers really had it rough. So the average value of crops per acre fell from $35 and 74 cents to $14 and 52 cents in 1921, a decline of 59%. In January, 1922, the secretary of agriculture said the farmer's dollar was quote, probably at the lowest point ever known. I don't, he brought, you know, he didn't know, he didn't know for sure. I mean, there's thousands of years. Seems I think like he might have been right, though. Maybe in the uh, maybe after the dollar, it's not it's uh, true. The US true. Dollar, so you maybe in on the U.S. dollar. Yeah, you, you can make that argument, but uh, they. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was definitely terrible. And then from 1914 to 1920, the cost of an acre of farmland in South Carolina doubled. So that kind of encapsulates the the inflation that happened from 1914 to 1920. It was constant. It was it was double digit, but then it immediately just fell by 50 percent during this collapse. 
people and business owners, it was really the business owners, they argued that the steady American worker was better off and, quote, realizes that his wages must be cut and is not blindly fighting reduction. Easterners thought that the, this, that inflation in wages had sapped the efficiency of labor. I know there's probably a lot of people listening that, are, that you know, you can see the conflicts that arise from here. They thought deflation, so these Easterners, probably the people running capital markets, maybe maybe some others. I don't know if this was correct thought or smart, but they thought deflation would, quote, cure some of this of the inflation and in, in wages that they were unhappy about. I uh, I don't know. It seems a bit mean, but snooty Easterners. Yeah, um, they, they were talking about this in the book, though. Though this, there, I don't have any quotes from that, but it's it, it was happening. It is still unclear, though, what sparked the reversal in prices. But before 1912, American government had never spent 700 million dollars, and in 1917, they spent two billion dollars on World War One stuff. And in 1919, they spent 18 billion dollars. So from 700 million dollars in 1912 to $18 billion in 1919. So you can see why people are so worried. There's this flood of spending going through. I think this likely had to do with the inflation acceleration. And then once spending stopped post-World War I and interest rates rose, it is easy to see why, well, not maybe not easy to see, but I think you can make that core connection to why prices drop so rapidly. Does that make sense? Are you, are you feeling that argument or not? Yeah, yeah I get it. Generally. Okay, all right. Uh, the decline in general commodity prices during the 18 months ended with June 1921 was sharpened beyond all precedent, according to uh, any history in the United States. So the index of the Bureau of Labor Statistics fell from 272 to 148 or 46%, and the 10 leading commodities fell in price by 61%. Um yeah, I mean, that's, that's it's pretty bad. By early 1920, businesses were doubling or tripling orders to try and keep up with rising prices. Once a commodity price like cotton dropped, the businesses had to sell their products at loss. So it almost doubled it because they were doing all these orders to, to catch up with the inflation. But then when the deflation hit, they still had to fulfill these orders and buy the stuff at a fixed price, right? When they, they you know set the contract for their order and then they, okay, it's cotton's collapsed by... 60%. Now I got to sell this at a loss. I have no choice. Yeah. What I'm seeing is that, well, there are those impacts that you just discussed, but then also it's like, I think the worst part is that everyone extrapolates the current trend out and you saw it during the inflationary period. And then you see it during the deflationary period. And if yeah. you know that your dollar is going to be worth more tomorrow because of deflation uh, or that your crops are going to be worth less, you're going to hoard out of conservatism. You're not going to spend Yep, exactly, exactly. And vice versa, you're going to spend as much as you can when you know your dollar is going to be worth less. And so I I think it's important to respect the cycle and know that like it's hard though. It's going to it's going to flatten out over time, but yeah, but it's hard to see when it's happening. I mean, you got a business to run and stuff like that. But once prices like this fell, I mean, a business owner likely would have trouble convincing workers to lower their wages along with the deflation. This is evidenced by a chart in the book uh, I read on this here. Uh, again, I'm forgetting the name, but it'll be in the show notes. So if we look at rel- rates of wages per hour indexed to 1913, in 1913, it was 100, 1919, it was 155, 1920, it was 199, 1921, it was 205. But retail food prices went from 100 in 1913. It's all indexed to 100 in 1913. You know, inflation happens to 184 in 1919, outpacing the rate of wages per hour growth. And then in 1920, it hit 219, 
But in the 1921, it dropped to 153, while wages stayed fairly steady. As you can see, that stuff can rapidly change in price, but the hourly weight of wages is not going to budge as much. People are just going to have that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you have a question here that says, can the deflationary spike be compared to the post-COVID shocks? Mm, oh, right, right. Yeah. Okay. And I think the difference, and you saw it, like how the Easterners and the uh, West or the farmers basically had like that discourse. like In 1920. Yeah. yeah. With that, at that time period, it's kind of like, you don't know who, you don't know how you got into that mess. So you don't know, really know what to do. Whereas with COVID, there was something easy to point your finger at. Like we're all victims. So we're going to like spend our way out of it. And so the government could just insert stimulus. Yeah. It was like a addition. It was like a yeah easy equation. Like we know what happened. There's this collapse. Yeah. We caused it ourselves. There's a little more clarity. Yeah. True. I felt like during COVID. Yeah. Um, yeah. Agreed. Agreed. And then this really comes down to when things become uncertain, people are afraid to invest, take loans, take risks. I mean, if you're an entrepreneur at that time, I don't even know if that word was invented yet, but if you're a business owner, you're just not going to take risks. And with investors not, or excuse me, not investors, with business owners not taking risks, it's just not good for, I mean, I don't know, how are you going to grow? How are you going to invent things? All that, all that good stuff. Keynes, which is one of the you know number, probably the most famous economist in history, said that deflation equals depression because modern businesses, quote, being largely carried on with borrowed money. So when you have borrowed money, I mean, we're, uh, everyone talks about the debt right, uh, right now, the debt, the corporate debt in the financial world in, mo- in modern times, but that's basically how it's been for the last you know century or so and farther back, most, you know, depending on where you go. Uh, but when you're running on credit, if you're borrowing and there's inflation, then it's a lot easier to pay off your debt. I think that's a lot of what times what people are talking about today. However, if there's deflation and you have borrowed money at a fixed price, I mean, that can be very difficult. Uh, I mean, if prices collapse by 20% and you have a fixed debt that's still at a million dollars, I mean, that's just 20, it's 20, whatever it is, 20% harder to pay off. It's so unpredictable on the owner's side. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, like, I don't know. It's not really up to them. I guess can, financial conservatism is the best approach. Yeah, I guess uh, that that's always the, that's, I think that's always the takeaway from stuff like this. Uh, but let's head no the average. <laughs> no leverage or minimize it because you never know what's going to happen. Yeah. All right. Let's take the ad break and then we'll wrap up with banks and lenders from this time period. All right. Welcome back. Again, if you remember National City Bank, we talked about them, kind of teased them with the Cuba and sugar exposure. Uh, But like we talked about in this episode, the total collapse in sugar prices, uh, I mean, they really got in trouble because of that. So we look at Chase National Bank. The chairman of the Chase National Bank, Albert H. Wigan, had borrowed $9.8 million from Chase itself. I will say in general, that's typically a red flag when something like that happens. But at that time period, there wasn't really the SEC. People kind of did this more often. Another director called William Thompson had borrowed $5.5 million. This combination from the two of them was more than Chase could show in capital at the time. So that's the capital base of the bank. Do you, do you know why they were borrowing? Was it just for I'm like sure it was, goods? I am sure it was borrowing just for some sort of business deal or something like that. Yeah. But basically, they were using it not, it wasn't as like a piggy bank per se, but almost like 
kind of uh, self-dealing, you know, getting loans from them, I think. I don't have the exact details. Personal line of credit. Something like that. Yeah. So companies who sat, who Wiggins sat on the board of also improved from or borrowed from Chase. So he's has relations from these other companies. Remember, he is the chairman of Chase National Bank. And that includes American sugar refining. So credits to officers, directors, and affiliated parties of Chase National Bank came to just short of $40 million, which is a huge amount at the time. Now, if we move on to the Guaranteed Trust Company of New York, it had $482 million in deposits. That's, again, a huge amount of money for the time period. The Fed of New York during this, you know, and again, all these people are getting, or not people, all these banks are getting impacted by the collapse in commodity prices. During the deflationary period, the Fed of New York advanced at $120 million, which is approximately twice its capital and surplus, and only had $2.1 million in highly liquid assets, or less than one half of 1% of its deposits. In the early summer of 1921, the Guaranteed Trust Company of New York was an outsized borrower from the Federal Reserve. So you can see there's the concentration here. You don't want everything to collapse. And it was also a major shareholder in the Mercantile Bank of the Americas, which could cause a cascading effect if it went under. The Mercantile Bank was founded in 1915 to construct trading business in South America, but the large collapse of commodity prices in 1920 caught the bank with unsaleable inventory. So again, the deflationary stuff, you're sitting on some whatever it is, sugar, whatever, you have to sell it at a loss. But if you do, in this point, with all the leverage, you're going to go under. So what do you do? So surprise, we talk about it in season one. The House of Morgan, I believe it's called J.P. Morgan at the time, raised $20 million in June and $35 million in August for the Mercantile Bank to make sure a, things didn't... Is that a nickname? Uh, yeah, that is the nickname. Yeah. The yeah. House of Morgan. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I think that's the famous book about them too. Yeah. And in 1920, CEO of General Motors, uh, his last name is Durant, bought more stock of GM on margin as the price weakened. So he decided, I don't know if (laughs) this is legal at the time, but in those days, you go on margin with 10 cents on every dollar. Uh, That seems today, if you know what that means, it essentially means that if you have $100 in assets, you can buy, well, am I getting it wrong? It's either $900 or $1,000. Basically, you can buy you know, only have 10 cents in deposits and a hundred dollars worth of stocks or whatever, or bonds or financial assets or something. But if prices collapse, but just a, just a touch, uh, I mean, your, your creditors are going to come calling in. So the backlash app, or do you have something to say here? It just seems so like, I mean, reckless. Yeah. And it's not just like, oh, it's easy now to look at it. Like anytime Who's it's going on that tense, hard to do like yeah. a reserve check? Like, do they have the yeah. money to pay this off? Yeah, I mean, going on margin with ten People cents on the dollar. Yeah, like it's it's so easy. Yeah, I mean, if you're go, I mean, no one it should. Is reckless, I guess. Yeah, no one in the right mind should look at someone and say, "Yeah, we're going to let you go on margin with ten cents <laughs> on the dollar." But it, I mean, in the twenties, it's going to get a lot worse, uh, which we'll probably talk about next season. The backlash from this. So when we have the deflation. Obviously, farmers are getting impacted here. So Kansas farmers called a wheat strike, uh, which I think is a pretty funny name. <laughs> they vowing to reduce their planting in 1921 by 30%. They demanded a price of $3 a bushel 
since the cost of production was two dollars and seventy seven cents. Good, good for them. Uh, yeah, that's, that's not. Yeah, uh, you got to do what you got to do because at the time, a bushel of wheat fetched only one dollar. I mean, when that's happening, you kind of look at yourself in the abyss, that's and you're like, better for society that they said like, either pay three dollars a barrel or pay three dollars I mean, a bushel, the- or we're done making wheat or it's over we're going to collapse yeah i mean you look at that and you'd be like gosh i mean three years from now we're done we're done for or maybe even less like i mean you know people like one dollar wheat for a time but uh unless if one dollar wheat stays there's not going to be much wheat any longer uh but i guess you know that's kind of the whole thing um prices kind of fix yourselves uh when you're in that you know free market society uh cotton fell like we talked about from 40 cents to 10 cents a pound it was a real great depression for farmers and interestingly, Harry Truman, future president, and Eddie Jacobson, who is, I think, just a random guy, their Kansas City haberdashery came. What's a haberdashery? Uh, I'm not sure. That's an old. Let's look it up. Uh, haberdashery. There's probably some older folks laughing at us. Men's clothing and accessory. Okay. I didn't know that. All right. <laughs> I guess no one calls them that anymore. Stitch, uh, Stitch fix name change impending. Yeah, <laughs> and they, they they you know they went on to trouble in the 1921 deflationary collapse. Prices plunged, so debt weighed heavily on them, and they had thirty thousand dollars in liabilities that they didn't know how to pay back. In 1922, the partners threw in the towel. Jacobson declared personal bankruptcy in 1925. But as you can see. Uh, Harry Truman had a, you know, he he made it made a name for himself in the world. Uh, so I guess you know, going bankrupt is not the end of your days. In the prior 22 months, though, from June 1920, not one of the 8,000 banks under the comptrollers comptroller's jurisdiction had gone insolvent. That was 30 times better than the average before the Federal Reserve was invented. I say that here because we're, we're going to bring things back for the first few episodes of this season. From say, I don't know, 22 months, whatever that is, almost almost two years during you know 1918 and 1920, you had a 30 times improvement from the average before the Federal Reserve uh, was invented, of or not invented, I guess invented, you know, started. Mm-hmm. You had a 30x improvement in banks going insolvent. Insolvent. I think I would argue. I mean, that shows that the Federal Reserve. At its most basic level, was just doing its job well. So to all the Fed haters, yeah, maybe I'm a, I'm a Fed uh, I'm a Fed apologist here. I don't I don't know. <laughs> uh, either they, either we're a hundred years into uh, well, we're hundred years a into an experiment, or yeah, or it's the worked. Fed has yeah merit. Yeah, no, yeah, we're a hundred years into the bubble. Uh, just a few more, and we're over. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's I guess that's mean. Uh, and maybe maybe that'll age poorly, but. Again, this is why the depression, and I and I say this again for this reason. This is why the depression here didn't really turn into a bank panic, even though some of the lending seemed loose like before. So before, like in the 1907 one, this would have turned into a financial crisis. But with the Fed, and I guess with J.P. Morgan, you know, everything ended up being okay, even if farmers and a lot of the businesses were doing terribly. There was plenty of gold to lend against in the U.S. at the time, and the Fed had nationalized the banking system to make it more stable, as opposed to the uncertainty of producer prices. Now, we can talk about that gold stuff. Ah, it's really hard to talk about because it has it has no relevance to how things operate today. But 
I believe it, some of it had to do with World War One because there was an influx of gold to, to the United States. So that gave us a little bit more room. And basically, you'd lend against the gold. So the more you had, the more ability you had uh, in general to kind of you know, do credit agreements, stuff Lending like power. that, do loans, lending power. That's a better word for it. So while there wasn't a panic like in 1907 or 2008, you'd probably compare 2008 to 1907 pretty clearly. Uh, you could see why, though, in late 1920 and early 1921, anyone would have been incredibly pessimistic about the future. And I'm talking more individuals here, business owners. This isn't really about like the financial markets in general. You had just done almost 20 years of the panic of 1907, the peak of the monopolies, where at that time period, few people were benefiting from saying how rich John Rockefeller was. It wasn't like it was really, you know, him and him, him and the guys there. Or no one was else was benefiting from that. You had World War One, which is terrible. The Spanish flu, and then this depression. And yet, you are about to become part of one of the quickest prosperity booms in the history of civilization. How hard do you think it would be as a stockholder in a company at the time? I think the hardest, because like you gone through twenty years, basically prices are flat. It's awful. The hard, yeah, the hardest part is look is like price referencing uh, your your stock or your index or whatever you own from 15 or 20 years ago and and having not made anything I would yeah. get, I'd probably throw in the towel yeah it's a uh, despite it's the bargains that might exist that yeah day. we're going to talk about the next episode it'll be more fun but that's going to do it for this episode of a history of financial markets for the last episode of season two we're going to delve into the recovery of 1921-1922 the September 16th 1920 bombing of Wall Street if you've ever heard of that and the incredible investment opportunities that were around for anyone with cash available at the depths of the depression